Nate Bradford Jr. is standing at a large round grill in his hometown of Boley, Oklahoma. It's Memorial Day weekend and he's cooking up beef burgers. Not for your typical family cookout to celebrate the holiday, no. Nate's cooking for hungry parade spectators and he's not the only one getting ready. Close by, there are black cowboys and cowgirls on their horses, tons of motorcycles, a marching band. These few downtown blocks are crowded. Nate has sunglasses on and a matching gold chain and bracelet. He's also wearing a leather butcher's apron and a fresh black and white cap with the G-Line logo across it. He's dressed for the occasion, both for the work and for chopping it up with family and friends who stop by. He looks right at home behind the grill, getting things ready for the day. Right now we're taking these fresh made patties, well not patties, beef burgers. Got some of that, that special G-Line sauce on them from the G-Line Ranch. We're gonna take it inside and let the ladies do what they need to do with it and give it to the customer. Nate's been going to the parade all his life but this is his first time offering up G-Line beef like this. It's a prime opportunity to promote the G-Line brand. Like I said, we're gonna change this world one piece of meat at a time. Hopefully, prayerfully, everything keep working out. We're gonna stay positive. Gonna make it do what it do. We're on the G-Line, baby. Hours after the parade, there's the Bowley Rodeo, the town's biggest event of the year. The whole weekend is a chance for residents to show their home at its best and most vibrant. Nowadays, the rodeo is basically the only big thing happening in Bully. The rest of the year is pretty quiet. You can walk down the middle of the street without much worry. But it wasn't always this way. Bully used to be a thriving hub, one of the most famous of Oklahoma's all-black towns. And the folks who love it, like Nate, are wondering if it can ever be that place again. My name is April Simpson, and from the Center for Public Integrity, this is The Heist. This season, a heist by the U.S. government of land and wealth from America's Black farmers and ranchers. The decline of Black agriculture that we've looked at so far has also led to the shrinking of places like Boley. Boley sits about halfway between Oklahoma City to the west and Tulsa to the north. It was founded in 1903. The first Boley Rodeo happened two years later. Officially, the Rodeo Weekend is meant to celebrate Boley's history, to provide space for local vendors like Nate, and to prove who's the best of the best in events like calf roping, steer wrestling, and bull riding. To me, it all felt like a big family reunion, a homecoming. People travel from across the state and across the country to be there. A lot of the visitors used to live in Bully, and they walk and talk and eat, catching up with old friends, maybe making new ones. Bowley was once a prime example of what you might call Black excellence. It was an all-Black town run by Black folks for Black folks. There was a thriving business district surrounded by fruitful farms and ranch land. At the peak of its prosperity, with more than 4,000 residents, 
Bowley was basically a country version of Tulsa's Black Wall Street, which is only about 50 miles away. But over the last century or so, Bowley's population has dropped to less than 500 people. Most businesses have closed shop. The schools have all shut down. Black land ownership in the surrounding areas has shrunk. And Bowley's light has dimmed. The rodeo weekend is the best time to get some idea of what Bowley once was. This is the biggest event, the rodeo. This is pretty much when all the alumni come back, so it's a big weekend for us. I wanted to get a real feel for Bowley from someone who spent a lot of time there, and local folks pointed me to Karen Ekubon. Karen is a tall, soft-spoken woman with long locks that flow down her back. She grew up in town and graduated from Bowley High School in 1988. When Karen talks about her childhood, like riding her bike up and down a hilly side street, her face lights up. It's easy to see how much Bowley means to her. Um, I feel that every seed that was planted um, in me started here. And I think it's important to always give back to the community that made you. It seems like almost everyone in town knows Karen. During our time together, I watched her greet friends and acquaintances with a hug and a little chit-chat. I found out later that she even helped Nate create the website for G-Line Ranch. If there were such a thing as a Bowley ambassador, Karen would fit the bill perfectly. Though she doesn't live in Bowley anymore, Karen is still deeply loyal to her hometown. And it's no wonder why. Growing up in an all-Black town had a big impact on her. All of Karen's teachers, all of her peers, all of the business owners in Bowley were Black. Being in a community where you felt like there was nothing that you couldn't do or accomplish, um, that foundation was so important. Um, I don't know how many people really get that. Um, Before all the festivities kicked off, Karen gave me a tour of the community. Bowley's downtown is not a big place, about 12 square blocks. So Karen and I started our tour on foot on Bowley's main drag, Pecan Street. We have a lot of pecan trees here in Bowley. That's why it's called Pecan Street. Is it Pecan Street or Main Street? It's Main Street, Pecan Street, so both the same. There might be a lot of pecan trees in Bowley, but there aren't many trees actually on Pecan Street. It's a hilly two-lane street with a wide shoulder and straight as an arrow. So standing in the middle of it, you can nearly see where the main drag begins and ends. It's lined by a patchwork of one- and two-story brick buildings. A lot of them have boarded up windows and doors. There are some crumbling structures that used to be buildings and a bunch of empty lots. But some doors are still open, including the post office. Grocery store, the post office here. I can still remember my P.O. Box 237. From the post office, you can see the town's tallest structure and most noted landmark, about a quarter of a mile away. It's an old water tower with the name of the town just barely visible through the rust on its side. It's one of the landmarks in town that, despite no longer being in use, local folks would like to see fixed up. 
But with so few residents, the town's tax base is pretty small. Even the mayor is a volunteer. So getting money for things like repainting the water tower can be tough. But they're part of Karen's work in Bully. She founded a community initiative called Project 2020, looking to restore and revitalize the town. She's getting money by applying for grants, gathering donations, and hosting fundraisers. Major projects take time. But Karen's had some success with anything that can be improved or created by residents themselves. Like at the south end of Pecan Street, where you turn off the highway to come into town, there's now a community garden. And this garden has been well received because it's right when you enter. And I, and that was important too, because I wanted people when they come home, that they feel good about coming home. That's very pretty. It's very green. Yeah. And I did notice that when I made the turn, like it was a nice welcoming yeah. the community. It's very green. When we do events here, when we have people come from like um, city areas, the one thing that they feel is like a sense of freedom. It's not a lot of noise. It's very calming, very relaxing. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very cool perk for Bully residents. They can take whatever they want from the garden, which is full of flowers, vegetables, and herbs. One year we did okra. We had so much okra. Ebony was like, I'm not growing okra ever again. <laughs> Those like back three beds were just full of okra. Ebony is in charge of the community garden. She also runs a little coffee shop just next to it. But for more substantial eats, Bully has one official restaurant, J&L McCormick's. It's across the highway from the community garden and just a short walk from the J.H. Lilly Correctional Center. The building once housed the state training school for incorrigible Negro boys, but in 1983, it was changed to a minimum security prison. The security is so minimal, in fact, that some prisoners have just walked away. Now, a sign along the highway warns that hitchhikers might be escaping inmates. The majority of our population are prisoners. Um, they count towards our census. These days, Bowley's total population hovers near 1,200 people. Of that number, less than half of them are free civilians. The Bowley of today is very different than the one Karen grew up in. The high school that she went to and the elementary school before that, both have been shut down. There's no Bowley Bears basketball anymore. The grocery store is gone. But for times when things get a little busier, like the yearly rodeo or Founders Day, Karen has created a few places for visitors to stay. Oh, it's pretty. So this is Lazy Bear. It's one of our tiny homes and it sleeps four. So this is a queen bed and this is a full pull-out sofa. It has a full bathroom with a shower, a little kitchenette, and this is a desk. Here in the chairs can double as end tables. So far, there are five tiny houses in Bowley, and they don't look like your typical used-to-be-a-storage-shed setups. These have pitched roofs, little front porches, and round picnic tables out front. Of the five, Karen owns two of them and the land they all sit on. She doesn't charge the other tiny house owners for the space because she wants to inspire more people to come back and to do good in Bowley by making their own similar improvements. 
Karen puts in all this work because she thinks Bully is worth it. Other people think so too. The town's listed on the National Register of Historic Places for its significance as a site of Black history during the first half of the 20th century, a place of business, community planning, local governance, and social welfare work. Karen applied for Bowley to host a traveling Smithsonian history exhibit and won. It highlighted the history of rural places like Bowley, paying tribute to the importance of land, the joys and hardships of rural life, and how these places evolve as life changes around them. It was on display in Bowley for six weeks. Um, it's important for us to let people know how important this history is to Oklahoma and to America. You know, my vision is just for people to come. People want to come back, but we have to give them something to come back to. And so, you know, we may not be what we were, but who says we can't be better? So we have to start from somewhere. The exhibit was housed at the community center, a squat stone building at the other end of Pecan Street. During my two visits to Bowley, I spent a lot of time there. On Juneteenth weekend, there was a panel of mayors from Black towns across Oklahoma. After it ended, I got to talk to two Bowley officials about what life was like in town for the generation before Karen's. I'm Henrietta Hicks. I'm the municipal judge of the town of Bowley. Judge Hicks also happens to be Karen's grandmother, and she's the town's historian. Judge Hicks was born in 1935, and has spent most of her life in Bowley. Like Karen, she went to high school here and graduated in 1953. I sat down with Judge Hicks and her old friend, Dr. Frances Shelton. I'm the mayor for the town of Bowley. Mayor Shelton whose doctorate is in adult and occupational education, graduated from Bowley High School in 1964. Back when they were growing up, the population was around 900 people, about twice what it is today. Mayor Shelton says the town of Bowley and the farming and ranching land that surrounded it were interdependent. Uh, there was a total of 17 communities that surrounded Bowley. I lived in the Russ community, my grandfather and father raised peas, corn, raised cotton. Cotton was once Oklahoma's biggest crop. In 1910, the state's cotton farmers produced nearly a million bales. And I can remember the first time they put a little cotton sack on me. My grandfather made a bet that I couldn't pick 100 pounds in a day, and I did. But I didn't know that he was just seeing how much I could uh, do and, and expected that every day. <laughs> By the time Mayor Shelton was a kid, Cotton's reign was waning. But she says it was still benefiting small farmers and ranchers like her family. So anyway, we raised pigs. Pigs, uh, hogs put me through college. So everything that you did on the farm paid off in the town when you brought those things to the town. So they were doing better than surviving on the cotton. And you had a lot of black farm and ranch families that... Yeah, we were surrounded by... That's all we were. Um, those kind of families, the farmers. Land ownership was very important then. It meant political influence, economic security, and wealth building, just like it does now. Mayor Shelton's family has managed to hold on to their land all this time. 
We still have, as a family, 320 acres. We do not sell our land. It will go from generation to generation because you can't make any more land. But you can take care of what you have. Education was also very important, Mayor Shelton says. Kids from the surrounding rural communities would come into town to go to school in Bowley. Success was part of what we did every day. Uh, We were taught by our teachers. And when it was time to take a break from schoolwork and farm work, people headed to Pecan Street. They ate at restaurants, went to church, picked up things from the grocery store, went to the movie house, visited the millinery shop, went for ice cream, all at businesses that were Black owned and operated. And at night, people headed to the juke joints. Because see, Bowley was a rip-roaring place, honey. On a Saturday night, you could boogie all night long. And I can remember coming over here, and, and the sidewalk was so full, I, I would walk, walk on, on the street. street. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes my little friend would come by and we'd slip off and come downtown. We had a place called the Cotton Club, and we'd go in there, and, and I'd love to dance. Boy, I would dance, tell my friend to watch the door, see if anybody come in that we didn't know. You know, just being a kid. I was 15 or 16 by that time. It's a far cry from how empty Pecan Street now is most days. And even their childhoods came after Bully's Peak as a pinnacle of Black success in Oklahoma. That story starts more than 50 years earlier, at the turn of the 20th century. It's a story of one group's triumph as a result of another's tragedy. That's after the break. Without the Trail of Tears, there would not be as many Black folks in Bowley. Before it was Bowley, the land the town sits on was Indian Territory. It belonged to the Muscogee Creek Nation. In the mid-19th century, the U.S. government forcibly removed the Creek Nation and four other Native American nations from the Southeast and handed their land to white settlers. The tribes were pushed onto new land to the West, including parts of what would eventually become Oklahoma. When they embarked on the Trail of Tears, the tribes brought with them the Black people they had enslaved. Years later, during the Civil War, the Muscogee Creek Nation was among the tribes that aligned with the Confederacy and lost. And the U.S. government forced them to grant Black people their freedom, as well as tribal citizenship. These new citizens were known as Creek freedmen and were eligible to hold and cultivate tribal land like the rest of the members of the Muscogee Creek Nation. But it wasn't long before white settlers found their way west as well and started to encroach on the five tribes' territory, just as black settlers were also making their way west after emancipation. I talked with David Chang, a professor of history at the University of Minnesota, about what motivated settlers to seek new land. At this time, the United States is an agricultural society. So to seek opportunity, to seek economic independence, is often to seek land ownership. The great majority of white Americans that would have gone there and the great majority of African Americans that would have gone to Indian Territory, both were motivated by that. But... Similarity is not equivalency because they occupied very different structure positions within the United States and within 
the racial hierarchy the United States had built and was continuing to rebuild. So white people honestly could rightfully say, not rightfully in a moral sense, but historically say, this country was made for us, right? Look at those founding documents. Look at those founding fathers. Now, African-Americans also said, we deserve a chance to own land and we deserve to be empowered citizens. So there's a similarity, but not a historical equivalency. In the late 19th century, in an effort to assimilate the five tribes, the U.S. government gave each head of household, both Muscogee Creek and Creek Freedmen, 160 acres of land to privately own. This was a departure from the communal land ownership that tribes were used to, and it came with a new set of rules. Those rules included greater protections for people with all or mostly Muscogee Creek ancestry, while people with Black ancestry were vulnerable to losing their land. But some Black families were able to hold on to their land, and Bowley got its start on the 160 acres owned by a Black Creek girl named Abigail Barnett, who came from a Freedman family. From the beginning, Bowley was intended to be an all-Black town. It was founded in 1903 and incorporated in 1905, just two years before Oklahoma became a state. It was built along a railway that connected Oklahoma and Arkansas, which gave it a big boost over other towns nearby. This little area here was just a hamlet. That's Judge Hicks again. When the railroad came through here, it made it prosperous because the railroad had to stop here because it was an old steam engine. That was why Bowley became well-known and why people came here. Because that's- The railroad meant that farmers and other business people could transport their goods to markets beyond the area and make more money. Judge Hicks' grandparents arrived in Bowley in 1906, right as things started to take off. They'd left Louisiana in search of freedom. Most of the people, when they came, some of them had come from places where they had had businesses. Some of them had come from towns where they owned cotton gins. And the basic thing most of them did, if they didn't stop right here in the town, they searched out property and land. And they bought land, they farmed the land, they raised cotton back then. That was the thing to raise was plenty of cotton because people picked cotton and, and you could sell it. And then of course people raised cattle. That was the bedrock for the people at that time. That was a way of making a living. And of course, naturally, the ground was fertile for vegetables. Owning and working your own land was the path to wealth and security, whether you were selling your yield or simply trading for what you needed. It was a big part of the plan for many Black people who fled the South, looking to escape Jim Crow violence and become independently successful. Booker D. Washington visited Bowley in 1905 and later wrote that it was the youngest, the most enterprising, and in many ways, the most interesting of the Negro towns in the United States. In Bowley, Washington saw evidence that Black people could build economic prosperity after slavery, despite segregation. The promise of building a place where you could own land, where you could vote, and because you could vote, you could avoid being exploited by the local government. David Chang again. You could face a judge. 
who had to answer ultimately in some ways to a political system where you were empowered. Your land could be taxed properly. You could face a sheriff who was ultimately answerable to a system where you were empowered. It was the hope of building a black belt where they could survive and thrive. Having Black leadership across all channels of daily life made the difference for Black people who lived in Boley, whether rural or towny. It might be a grocer who's willing to extend credit to you, whereas a white grocer might not extend credit to you. It might be somebody who can sell the inputs that you need for your farm. It might be a small bank. And the idea of a small financial institution is very, very important in this situation because, of course, capitalism is about capital and you have to have access to capital. And who has the capital? The banks. And Boley, it had banks. Eventually, it also gained three cotton gins, its own electrical plant, and a business district full of Black-owned businesses. It even had several colleges, notably the Creek Seminole College and the Methodist Episcopal College. By 1911, just eight years after it was founded, Boley had 4,000 residents and was the largest of 50 all-Black towns across Oklahoma. There was a Masonic temple, grocery stores, hotels, department stores, a barber shop, the water tower, and so much more. Boley's success opened up a world of opportunities for residents who wanted the town to keep growing and to make those opportunities available for as many other Black people as possible. They sent word to family and friends who were still out east, telling them how great things were, how living in an all-Black town was a major improvement for their safety and livelihood. They took out ads in newspapers in the South, beckoning other Black people to make the trek west. The ads promised land to build homes and farms, community and social status, and freedom, economic and otherwise. There were people whose entire jobs were to travel to cities in the South and recruit folks to Bole. It was a project that was generations in the making um, for these African-American people. Um, this kind of institutions, sovereign institutions, whether it be a farm or a church or a grocery store or a small bank, that are an effort at taking away the fragility of um, many African-American lives at this time. As soon as Oklahoma became a state in 1907, lawmakers began passing the kind of Jim Crow laws that were common in the former Confederate states. Laws like segregated schools and railway coaches, laws that made it harder for Black folks to vote, that made marriage illegal between Blacks and whites. It was precisely those kinds of laws that Black people who'd migrated from the South were trying to escape. But despite that, historians like Judge Hicks say Bully felt protected in a way. Because it was pretty much isolated from white people, the residents didn't experience as much racism or discrimination as long as they stayed within its bounds. This was a huge deal when other places in America were wholly uninhabitable for Black people. Bowley wasn't just an all-Black town built by Black people for Black people. It was an incredibly successful one. 
But this bubble of safety, this black utopia, would not last. The population started declining in the 20s when the boll weevil came along, which is a bug, and it chewed up the cotton. It just, that's just a simple way of putting it. It cut the cotton. Judge Hicks again. Plus the fact the government stopped the farmers, especially black farmers, from growing the amount of cotton that could feed a family. The boll weevil, mechanization, a major drought and other factors had sunk cotton prices. And the federal government thought farmers were over-reliant on cotton and needed to diversify their crops. So it passed the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933, which paid farmers to limit the acres of cotton they grew. If a farmer had already planted their crop when the law went into effect, they had to plow up a portion to qualify for the payments. And if Black folk, for instance, had been planting and growing cotton, maybe 40 acres of it, they cut you and told you you couldn't grow but 15. Well, you can't feed 11 kids on 15 acres of cotton. Many Black farmers, especially those on former tribal lands, no longer had enough crop to make ends meet. And the state's tenant farmers and sharecroppers were left out when landlords didn't distribute the share of payments that belonged to them. The system also pushed up land prices, making it more difficult for people to get into farming. Couple that with the drought and the Great Depression, and soon enough cotton was no longer Oklahoma's king crop. And it wasn't just cotton. America's agricultural economy as a whole was suffering, which was bad news for farmers and the towns that depended on them. In Boley, by the end of the 30s, the railroad went bankrupt leaving the town cut off from other markets and business opportunities. The railroad, which was key to Boley's success, was no more. Its Black farmers and ranchers were left isolated. And then on top of that, there's the increasing rabidity of white supremacy across the nation, and especially in eastern Oklahoma. The rise of outlaw elements of white supremacy, like the Ku Klux Klan, and very much legal instruments of white supremacy, like much of the government of the state of Oklahoma and all of its counties, made it difficult for these towns to really survive. Outside the South, Oklahoma had the highest numbers of documented terror lynchings between 1877 and 1950. Nearly half of the 75 documented killings were in Tulsa County, only 40 miles northeast of Boley, and several were clustered in the counties around it. Boley might have been relatively safe, but it was close to sundown towns like Okima, just 12 miles away, where white mobs were known to violently attack Black people after dark. All of this led to a migration out of all Black towns as people went looking for better odds elsewhere. Most African-Americans who left eastern Oklahoma, as far as I can tell, in the 1930s, um, some went into agricultural harvest labor, like further west, right, in Arizona or California. Many of them moved to cities. They moved to St. Louis. They moved to Oklahoma City. They moved to Chicago in search of another economic opportunity. Some of Mayor Shelton and Judge Hicks' family members made the move. There was nothing else for them to do. Right. That's why my parents moved to California. Well, my dad went to California because we had a big farm and you could no longer raise enough cotton. 
he had to leave and go to California to take care of four people. Judge Hicks stayed behind in Boley with her aunt and uncle. By the end of the 1950s, Boley's population was less than 600 people. People who did stay in Boley faced another battle as farming practices changed. Years ago, when farmers used to farm with a mule and a plow, times changed. They wanted to buy tractors. But by the late 50s and 60s, Boley didn't have its own banks anymore. Local farmers had to go outside its bounds to look for funds. Many of them could not get a loan to buy a tractor because they would loan it to them in, in Okima because they were black. The banks would loan money. So there was a lot of discrimination with the black farmers. Consequently, that's another reason why some of them had to leave the farm. Today, Boley couldn't thrive the way it did a hundred years ago. The town's suffering from many of the problems you see across rural America. The small number of people still there are aging. Without schools, it's hard for families to stick around. And without sustainable work, there's nothing to draw new folks in. There aren't a lot of people like Nate who are committed to staying in Boley to try and reignite the town's fire. After all, the rodeo is only one weekend a year. It can only do so much. But it didn't have to be this way. It's easy for us when we look at the present to understand it as an inevitability rather than a historical problem. Of course, the countryside is largely white. Of course, most land is mostly owned by white people. Of course, Native American people lost their land. But once you start to look at the details of how this happened, there's not an of course to it. It took policies, it took laws, it took public officials, it took the enforcement of certain laws, for example, preventing black people from voting. It took the non-enforcement of other laws, the laws protecting the lands of Native American people and of, of black Alates, right? So it took policy to create the Oklahoma that we look at today. It took policy to create the America that we look at today. I think that if you want to understand racial hierarchy, if you want to understand anti-blackness, if you want to understand native dispossession, if you want to understand American capitalism, you need to understand how this was created through a historical process. It's the kind of process that some black farmers and ranchers say still occurs to this day. The dispossession of Black-owned land is not an accident. Federal policies and practices shape this reality. For decades, farmers and ranchers had attempted to fight back with little success. But in the late 90s, they organized a national effort and took the fight to Washington, D.C. Next time on The Heist, a big push to hold the USDA accountable for discriminatory practices. What is the sin of the black farmer that he can't go to court and receive justice? What about us? We're God-fearing, hard-working, law-abiding, taxpayer citizens. So why can't we receive justice in this country? This season of The Heist is hosted by me, April Simpson, and brought to you by the Center for Public Integrity. This episode was written and produced by Kiara Powell. Our team includes Camille Peterson, Wilson Sayre, Sarah Nix, 
Kishel Williams, Dan O'Donnell, McNelly Torres, Matt Duranzo, Jamie Smith-Hopkins, Lisa Yannick-Litwiller, Ashley Clark, Vanessa Lee, Charlie Dodge, and Janine Jones. Our fact checker is Peter Nubit-Smith. This episode was mixed by Louis from StoryYard. And this podcast was produced in partnership with the McGraw Center for Business Journalism at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. If you'd like to learn more about David King's work, you can check out his book, The Color of the Land, Race, Nation, and the Politics of Land Ownership in Oklahoma, 1832 to 1929.